Hi, everyone. My name is Jen Tosley. And I'm Jose Sanchez. Welcome back to the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. This is episode 83. And for this episode, we are bringing in Dr. Pamela Buckley to speak with us about intervention programs, blueprints for healthy youth development, and her paper on racial and ethnic representation in preventive intervention research. Pamela R. Buckley is an associate research professor in the Institute of Behavioral Science at the University of Colorado Boulder. She is also the principal investigator of Blueprints for Healthy Youth Development, a globally recognized registry of experimentally proven interventions promoting rigorous scientific standards for certification that serves as a resource for governmental agencies, foundations, community organizations, and practitioners seeking to make informed decisions about their investments in preventive interventions. Her expertise is in evidence-based decision-making, that is the use of scientific evidence to inform decisions about social programs and policies for youth. Her scholarship focuses on interdisciplinary and applied research to understand what works for whom and under what circumstances, and in generating reliable evidence concerning responses to educational health and social problems. She received the 2023 Society for Prevention Research Nan Tobler Award for her contributions to the summarization or articulation of the empirical evidence relevant to prevention. The Society for Prevention Research noted how Dr. Buckley's leadership in the use of research generated from the Blueprints Registry has contributed to the importance of ensuring that evidence-based interventions are not only based on sound science, but are also representative of diverse populations, readily accessible and transparently presented. In today's episode, we'll be talking about one of Pam's publications, Racial and Ethnic Representation in Preventive Intervention Research, a Methodological Study. It was co-authored with Vilma McBride-Murray, Charlene Gust, Amanda Larica, and Fred Pample. It was published in Prevention Science in 2023. With that being said, let's bring in Pam. Hi, Pam. Thank you for joining us today. We very much look forward to speaking with you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for caring about this topic that I'm excited to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, you know, speaking of this topic, you have extensive knowledge on prevention science and expertise in the design and implementation of evaluation research projects. And so we're really excited to get the chance to talk to you about these topics as well as the blueprints for healthy youth development. So we're going to, in you know, true TCA fashion, kick off with a pretty broad question. And so broadly speaking, what is prevention science? It is a very broad field topic. Generally speaking, it's multidisciplinary and it's focused on understanding human development, preventing behavioral problems, and implementing effective interventions in community, home-based, school settings, et cetera. To give you an example of what I mean by multidisciplinary, I am trained as an educational psychologist. So my background is working in schools, helping kids learn how to learn and how to manage their emotions. And I am now working on a team with a criminologist in terms of thinking about how to prevent problem behaviors related to with a family intervention related to gang activity and preventing embeddedness in gangs. So that's an example of how a criminologist and a psychologist can bring our relevant expertise together to think about how to implement an evidence-based intervention in community settings. Great. So 
Prevention science, we also know, really focuses on the development of evidence-based strategies, including strategies for prevention and intervention. And prevention typically focuses on things like stopping something from happening, like criminal behavior, while intervention is geared toward kind of interfering in criminal behavior with the goal of improving the situation or stopping or slowing down criminal behavior. And I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but hopefully we'll get to a paper that you wrote with some of your colleagues, and it discusses preventive intervention. So kind of combining these two terms. And given that there's this definitional distinction between prevention and intervention, can you just tell us what preventive intervention is? I will do my best, but actually, Jen, I think you did a very good job explaining it yourself. And I'll, I'll give a general idea, but what's, I don't want to get bogged down by the terms. So prevention, intervention, really, when we think about it, prevention is, as you, you discussed, it's about proactively measuring activities designed to stop or reduce the occurrence of a problem before it actually begins. And that's what makes this work so tricky because we're trying to measure and evaluate something that never happened. And I'll get into what that might look like. And when we think about prevention and we think about prevention measures, they target a population or a specific group that is experiencing some types of behaviors that demonstrate risk factors. And I'm going to get into some examples. And what we want to do is intervene with those risk factors and reduce them We want to build those protective factors to prevent that problem from happening in the first place. So that's the idea of prevention. Um, If you think about it on a simple level, taking an aspirin to prevent, as you first start to feel the headache, you take an aspirin to try and prevent that headache from getting worse. So that's a really concrete, conceptual idea of what we mean by prevention. And then in terms of intervention... Yes, one definition for intervention is thinking about treatment. So something has gone wrong and we're going to treat it. So we have a bad headache. So we're going to take a migraine medicine intervention or pill pill. Another way to think about intervention is to think about strategies. So when I think about interventions and I think about evidence-based interventions, I'm thinking about collective group of strategies that have been put together. And those strategies are designed to, in the realm of prevention, they're designed to reduce risk factors and build protective factors. So when you think of preventive interventions, you're thinking about what types of strategies based on a theory that shows that those strategies really do work together to prevent some sort of problem from happening later down the line. So we're thinking about all those activities that are combined together in a certain sequence with a certain target population, and then they're intervening to prevent those risk factors and then promote the type of outcomes that they're looking at in terms of whether it's keeping kids in school or or whatnot. So let me tell you what, when we think about crime and we think about crime prevention and crime preventive intervention, so in terms of the topic of who the audience following this podcast might be interested in, if you're thinking about, I'm a criminologist, what is a preventive intervention designed to to prevent criminal behavior, the types of risk factors that these interventions would target for youth, because again, we're thinking about youth at Blueprints, we really focus on youth ages 0 to 25. But we think about behaviors such as aggression, bullying, or fighting would be examples of risk factors, disruptive conduct in the school or community setting, substance use, particularly at a young age, truancy, school failure, 
negative peer influences, family environments that are characterized by neglect or parents that have substance use issues or parents that have demonstrated criminal behavior, lack of parental support, or even growing up in neighborhoods with high crime rates. Now, it's not to say if you demonstrate any of those types of risk behaviors that you are going to become a juvenile delinquent. That's not the case at all. There's something around resiliency that we really don't understand, A. And B, it's the combination of these risk factors together. It's also the age developmentally where the child is in terms of and when you can intervene to prevent. It's So it's a cocktail of different types of risk factors that could produce criminal behavior. And so the types of interventions, preventive interventions that I'm familiar with in terms of blueprints for healthy youth development, the ones that I've looked at, they're targeting, it could be even as young as zero to three. It could be a home visitation program and thinking about working with parents that need to build up their parenting strategies or, you know, lack that kind of support. It could be an intervention that's focused at the community level and it's working with parents and young children. It could be an intervention that's an after school program at a school. So it really depends on the population you're working with. It depends on the age group. And it depends on the needs of that population in terms of what types of strategies you would be focused on in terms of intervening to reduce those risk factors. So just in sum, prevention, we're trying to prevent the occurrence of a problem behavior from happening in the first place and intervention being those list of activities that have been been demonstrated to be theoretically worked together in order to intervene, reduce the risk factors, build the protective factors to produce outcomes in terms of supporting healthy youth development. One very important outcome being preventing juvenile delinquency or any kind of problem behavior related to breaking the law or getting involved in crime. That was a great answer. You made me feel like you're like a magician where you can just like create this cocktail that does all of these magical things. But well, yes, I don't thank you for estimate the complexity of this work, yeah. the importance of this work, and the amount of research that goes into these interventions, but also how far we've come as a field 30 years ago, prevention science, we're still a young field, but 30 years ago there was an understanding in the field that nothing worked. And here we are now with a whole list of interventions based on theory and research and very rigorous outcomes or evaluations that are saying, yeah, no, we actually do have some strategies of what could work in terms of intervening and supporting healthy youth development. So unfortunately, we don't have any magic, like Jen said, but what we do have or would like to have and something that seems to become it has kind of almost become a bit of a buzzword, it feels like, is this term evidence-based or evidence-based programming. And we could probably have an entire episode of what exactly evidence-based means, because it, it seems it means something different to anybody you ask. But for you, what are evidence-based interventions, particularly as they relate to violence and crime? And why are they important for preventing or intervening in antisocial behavior? Well, to your first point, Jose, about evidence, you're absolutely right. There are so many terms out there. It's confusing. And I spent a lot of time trying to unpack and translate what the different types of evidence terms mean and how they relate to the work that we do. For those of your audience listeners who might be interested in this topic, I'll follow up with each of you two resources that I have. One is just a newsletter that we wrote 
that really explains the evidence continuum and takes all these different terms that are used across different fields and puts it on one continuum to translate. The other is a chapter that we have coming out in a book related to what is evidence, what is evidence-based interventions, what are these levels mean, why are they important to understand? So I'll follow up with you on that. But to answer your question briefly, so evidence-based intervention, they're kind of related to what I said before. They're the strategies, programs, or practices that have some sort of theoretical causal mechanism saying this strategy A will work with this population B to produce outcome C. And what makes them evidence-based is that they have been rigorously evaluated. And that's part of what we're going to talk about in the rest of this podcast is what it means to, to think about rigorous evaluation and how to unpack that. And through these rigorous evaluations, these interventions are showing to demonstrate effectiveness in the intervention or in the outcomes they targeted. So this intervention says we can, you know, help keep kids in school and reduce truancy. That's the, the type of, if that's part of the theoretical mechanism of the intervention, then that should be the outcome that we're demonstrating effectiveness in. So that's kind of the construct of an evidence-based intervention. In the context of violence and crime prevention, evidence-based interventions are super important for addressing antisocial behavior because, as I've mentioned, they rely on empirical evidence to inform their design and implementation. So you've got experts in the field, um, community voices, different folks involved in this process in terms of designing those activities for the certain target populations and looking at what types of outcomes they're intended to improve. When we think about, and I'm kind of being redundant here, evidence-based prevention programs, which is really more my expertise, it's really thinking about risk factors, protective factors, and outcomes. Those are three separate things. So the activities within that intervention that you're trying to prevent, let's say it's criminal delinquency or juvenile delinquency, then those risk factors should relate to some of the list I just gave you in my previous response. And then if you think about preventing, you're targeting those risk factors with the intention being then to reduce the likelihood of any kind of juvenile delinquency behavior. There are also really important ethical considerations about using evidence-based interventions. And by that, I mean, it's really important to implement interventions that have been scientifically validated to importantly reduce the risk of harm to individuals and communities. We don't want to be implementing interventions. It's one thing to say we don't know if they work. It's another thing to say we don't know if they do harm. So by having that evidence, it really does let you know that it's not doing harm to the community. And it's particularly important when you think about working with vulnerable populations who have been kept from having opportunities to prevent adverse risk factors in the first place, just given the circumstance in which they were born into. So these ethical considerations are really important for why we should use evidence-based interventions and the other thing, too, is we want to think about lasting change. We want to think about evidence-based interventions that are more likely to produce lasting changes in behavior and reduce, in this case, recidivism rates among individuals who are engaging in antisocial behavior. And then we think about it, the long-term impact is essential for creating safe communities, for promoting individual rehabilitation. So by relying on data and research findings, communities and organizations, they really can make more informed decisions about which interventions are most likely to achieve 
the kinds of outcomes they're intending to, they're striving for in order to contribute to a safer and more supportive environment in which they live. So I know that sounds, I hope I'm not on my you know, high horse saying that. I feel very strongly about it's really important to invest in social solutions that have been demonstrated to work. And it's really important to make sure that that intervention that you are selecting has been tested with the population you care about and shown to work because you can't assume what works in one population is going to work in another. And again, this is something I think we're going to talk about later related to a paper that I just wrote on this topic. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And I think, Jen, I think you do too. You know, nothing drives me crazier than seeing like just money and resources pumped into programs that one, we absolutely best don't know if they work. And at worst, we already know that they don't work. You know, like I think the the most common example that I, I'll give like my students whenever this topic comes up is there, right? Like, yes, like it still exists. I don't think it exists with the presence that it did when I was growing up. You know, I always wanted one of those dare shirts. I think it's yeah. different now too. They've tried to revamp it. I don't know. Pam, you uh, know more about that. But. On there and internationally, it's so well known. Yeah. The concept like, for folks who don't know about yeah. dare is I'm simplifying it, bringing a police officer into a classroom of young kids and saying, if you do these bad things, you're going to end up in jail. I'm really simplifying it. I don't yeah. mean to dismiss yeah. some of the complexities that might go into it, but absolutely, Jose, that is the classic example of a program that doesn't work and has been implemented internationally and tons of money put into it. Yeah. So I'm like all on board of the, let's see if this actually works before we start just like dumping money into this and just like manpower and like resources. But okay, so this gets us into the blueprints for um, healthy youth development. You are the principal investigator for blueprints as it's known for short. It's a globally recognized registry of experimentally proven interventions that promote rigorous scientific standards for certification. And so we want to ask you in your own words, what is the Blueprints program? So I'll give an analogy. Before I do that, um, thank you for your nice introduction of Blueprints. I'm going to call it Blueprints for short. And the name itself, it's pretty indicative of what we do. We're trying to, there is no, I'm a parent and I'm educated. I've, I've had the privilege of going to school for many years and I don't know how to parent. It's daunting. And so there is no Blueprint for how to raise a healthy child. And so what we're trying to do is look to science and look to evidence to provide a framework or a list of strategies for whether it's families, communities, practitioners to use to think about what might be an effective way to to support healthy youth development. And so what we do is we run an online clearinghouse. So it's free, It's open source. Anyone can hop on. You can search. You can ways to query information, export it to an Excel file, to a PDF file. We have tons of information on individual interventions that are shown to be effective. And the types of interventions that we focus on are for youth. And they're either, it's one of two types of interventions that we list off. They either are designed to prevent or reduce negative behavioral outcomes or promote positive youth development. And so the focus is on youth, and that includes all the way up through post-secondary and into the workforce. It's a pretty broad view of youth. And then given that our focus is on prevention, we do not have list interventions that deal specifically with 
treatments. So pharmacological, so medical treatments would not be on our registry, nor would interventions for diagnosed mental health disorders. So really we're focused on the prevention piece. So the analogy I give is I look to the consumer reports guide whenever I want to purchase an expensive appliance. I know nothing about refrigerators and I go to the store and I see five different refrigerators, different costs, and they all are saying they're the best in sliced bread. I don't want to spend the time figuring out which of the five is the best. I also don't have the expertise. So I turn to the Consumer Reports Guide because it's trusted. And I know that they hire people with the types of expertise for the types of things I'm interested in purchasing. So I don't have to put in that. I don't have to do that legwork. That's exactly what Blueprints is, but we're not in the business of selling appliances. We're in the business. It's not even a business. We are in the open science, open registry platform of promoting effective interventions. So we're trusted. We're known around the world, like you mentioned, Jose, and we have no skin in the game. We make no money off of any information that comes out of the registry. Those of us who look at the science, we have backgrounds in methods, research, we have different content expertise. So I mentioned I'm a psychologist, I work with social workers, I work with criminologists. Actually, Jen used to work on the registry with me when she was in grad school. And so we have no skin in the game, we're independent and we are vetting the science. And we have a set of standards that we follow that are we are transparent about, that we have on our registry, that we've written papers about so folks are clear about what the standards are that we're looking at. And if these individual studies meet our standards, one of which means it has to be based on a randomized controlled trial or quasi-experimental design study, then they get put on our registry. And then we collect additional information, not just on the scientific part, so what those studies look like. And if study A says the program works and study B says the program doesn't work, how do you marry those two conflicting messages? So we go through and unpack all of that. We also, though, we serve audiences of researchers who want to learn how to design good studies, who want to, who are interested in evaluation. We also, though, serve stakeholder groups around, they don't want to know about the science, they just want to trust that it's effective. What they want to know is, what does it take to implement that program with fidelity in my, my specific setting? So when we collect a ton of information around costs, human resource it takes to implement, where do I go to get the information, etc. So... In a nutshell, we're really designed, we're constantly reviewing the literature, and we're really trying to provide an accessible online registry for folks to go to. And there's lots of ways to search for information on the registry in order to look for solutions or strategies or effective interventions that could work with the target population they're interested in serving. We also spend a lot of time doing efforts like this. We want to promote the importance of high scientific standards. We want to promote the why it's important to consider evidence-based interventions. We want to do a better job in terms of explaining the role of prevention, which is a whole movement, and how blueprints fits within the prevention ecosphere and how we can work across disciplines with criminologists with some common goals in terms of promoting how evidence can inform our strategies. Awesome. And we know that blueprints has been at like the forefront of evidence-based programming since 1996. You guys were born? No, we were both already born. (laughs) Yeah, I was five. You were five. Yeah. I was older. (laughs) (laughs) Can you just give us like a quick history of Blueprints, how it came about, 
kind of how it's developed and changed over time? Well, so we were founded by Dr. Del Elliott, who's a sociologist at the University of Colorado, and he's known internationally. And he's known for many reasons. And his expertise is in violence prevention and delinquency. And where he really got famous was right around the Columbine massacre, which happened not to, right around when Blueprints was launched. And there were just so many questions about what could we be doing to prevent these kinds of tragedies from happening. Combined with Dr. Elliott really spending a lot of time in Colorado, which is where we're where we started, we're at the University of Colorado Boulder, talking with the legislature here, talking with practitioners, talking with policymakers when it comes to thinking about how to prevent antisocial behavior, how to prevent juvenile delinquency and crime. What are we as a state doing? And what the at the time, 1990, June 1996 and 1999, the, the answer was more anecdotal. We didn't have a lot of good evidence in terms of what was effective for these types of risk factors that the community wanted to serve. And that's where Dr. Elliott started. Del Elliott started the Blueprints Registry. And we were the very first Campbell Collaboration, which does health RCTs more. They're located in the UK. They do more meta-analysis and systematic review. Blueprints and Campbell Collaboration started about the same time. And then years later, there was a proliferation of registries that have gone up, including Crime Solutions, which is a registry that folks who follow this podcast might be most familiar with. And as the story goes... When the folks were developing crime solutions, they came to Dell to ask for his advice. And his advice was, don't reinvent the wheel. Let's all work together. So I do spend a lot of time trying to advocate for actually advocating for the use of evidence-based interventions and then doing my best to explain what's unique about these different registries. So what makes crime solutions similar or different to blueprints? And we can get into that if you're interested. What we want to do is... So that's the history of how we started. And where we are now is, as we have a proliferation of terms for evidence and a proliferation of resources to go to find that evidence, how can we work together collaboratively as a field to help users navigate all of this information? Because it's important for reasons we just went into that folks consider the evidence base of these interventions before they adopt them in their communities. So we've been around since 1996. We do talks internationally, and we are really excited to be talking to folks like you, because even though we've been around for a long time, there's still a lot of folks that don't know that these types of resources exist, which is why I'm here today. And that's why we have you on. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. And, you know, we do our best to get the word out. You know, like, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast a few times, but my wife is a, a school psychologist. Oh, that's how I'm trained in school psychology. Yeah. yeah. So, and, you know, she's worked at a few schools and like those, you know, they'll like get like the mental health team together and the principal or whoever mm-hmm. is like, you know, we're thinking about implementing a new program for whatever. Give us what you think are, are good programs. And, you know, she'll come home and be like, you know, we had this meeting and they're like asking us to come up with these ideas of what to implement for X, Y, and Z. And like, I just, I don't know. And I'm like, why don't you look at the blueprints registry? They have good stuff on there, like school-based programming that that could be of interest. And you know, like I or you know, sometimes a, a school will just straight up tell them like, "This is what we're implementing," and you know, it'll I'll tell her you know, see if it's on blueprints and like what the evidence says about it and you know how to implement it. And like I try to give her the tools to, even though it's just like one school, I'm hoping that it helps that school and those students. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. That's excellent advice, Jose. I'm so glad you're saying that. And I'd be happy to talk with your wife anytime. <laughs> okay. So we've talked about sort of what Blueprints is. Now we want to talk to you about sort of this process of getting on Blueprints or being certified by Blueprints. And so first, Blueprints uses four criteria for assessing intervention programs. What are the criteria used to examine the evidence of an intervention's effectiveness? Yeah, I'll try not to get too in the weeds because I can get very excited talking about this kind of information. The first standard that we have is called intervention specificity. And why that's important is it relates to answering the question for whom these interventions work and in what settings. So when we think that the first thing that we look at when we're looking at a published study, and when we say published, it could be an academic paper or it could be a report, could be a dissertation. It could be a master's thesis. It could be a report that a research firm produced. So there's lots of different types of articles that we're looking at. But the first thing that we're doing is we're looking to see, does it have a control group? The second thing we're looking at is, does it serve youth ages 0 to 25? The third thing we're looking at is, are those outcomes that they're targeting behavioral outcomes? So do they reduce criminal activity, recidivism? Do they reduce delinquency? Do they promote academic achievement, et cetera? The intervention specificity then is really thinking about, okay, they've met those requirements. We want to be very clear about who that intervention targets. So in terms of race, ethnicity, in terms of gender or gender identity. And then the other thing we're looking at for that intervention is what we call prevention category. And so there's different levels of prevention. There are universal strategies that address an entire population. So Jose, to your wife's question, it, it could be a strategy for the entire school. That would be a universal strategy. It could be a selective strategy, which is prevention strategies that target subgroups that are starting to show some risky behavior. So they might need some extra intervention. And then the third level that we're looking at and describing an intervention specificity is if it's an indicated strategy. So we've got universal, selective, and indicated being that those youth are all like maybe they're starting to, they're in seventh grade and they're starting to skip school. So they're actually starting to show some problem behaviors and you want to give them even extra support. So those are the types of intervention strategies that we're looking at with intervention specificity. We're also being really clear about sample demographics for the studies that meet our evaluation quality that has influence on generalizability. And then we provide description about whether the program is implemented within individuals, within families, if it's implemented at a community level or within a school setting, et cetera, because that's going to impact the types of, depending on where you're working. And then the finally that we, and this is an issue of equity, is we're looking at a summary of findings overall. So for example, does this intervention reduce recidivism? But then we're also looking by subgroup because we're really interested in looking at reducing disparities. So is that type of, is that specific intervention working better for one, one subgroup? And is that a subgroup that has in the past shown greater disadvantage, so needs even more support in terms of evening the playing field to simplify it? That's a lot of information, but the takeaway for intervention specificities, we want to be really clear about the theory around that program and who it's been developed for, because that has implications for who it's implemented with. Then we get into all the issues around internal validity. And internal validity has to do with research design, statistics, and that all relates to making causal inferences. And if you meet all those standards, the last thing we look at is what we call dissemination readiness. And that's really thinking about 
what does it take to implement that intervention with fidelity in the setting, in the target setting? If, if there is no way to implement it, it's not going to be on our registry. I have a quick follow-up. Okay. One of the things you mentioned was the age range. And so mm-hmm. someone that's listening to this might say 25, like you're a grown adult at 25. Mm-hmm. How can that be youth? Maybe tell us a little more how you ended up like on that age range, particularly I, after, you- like 18 plus. Yeah, it's tricky because it's not like, what is prevention? Because you can have prevention for adult behaviors, you know, Mm -hmm. as well, or in adult populations. We're really thinking about youth development. So when you think about healthy youth development, you think about the child is born into the world. So you've got the family setting. And then the child grows older into the school setting, which is K-12. But that doesn't mean once you've graduated or if you haven't graduated, if you're 18, you're, you're an adult, even though in some ways you're an adult. I have an 18-year-old. I can tell you he still needs a lot of guidance. So then we think about development all the way through post-secondary and into the workforce. So really thinking about what does it take to support healthy youth development throughout the continuum of development into becoming independent individual, contribute to society, have a job, et cetera. So it, it is a long continuum in terms of prevention, but thinking about it from birth all the way into more young adult and independence. I was wondering, since you're a psychologist, like I was wondering if this had anything to do with brain development, because 25 is kind of the loose age yes. that they give you for, you know, your brain fully developing. And I didn't know if that was the reason for that. Well, age. That also relates to developmentally where you are. So at 25, yeah. you know, you might, you may or may not be finishing some sort of higher ed situation. You may or may not be entering the workforce. It really depends. But developmentally, yes, it has to do with where you are developing in terms of cognition and maturity mapped to development from when you're born into the world all the way into where you become an independent, you know, hopefully contributing member of society. This is the rule. Yeah. You know, and so, and when we started in terms of our history, we started, I didn't really finish that part of the story. We started in crime prevention and violence prevention because that was Del Elliott's expertise in 1996. And in 2010, we had funding to think about the child holistically and not just from a deficit mind frame. And so that's where the outcomes that we started to assess didn't just relate to reducing those negative problem behaviors, but also to promoting the positive behaviors. And so we have more comprehensive outcomes that we look at. And then that's kind of the continuum thinking about zero to 25, which is really kind of a broad continuum for thinking about prevention. So based off of these criteria that you have, Programs can either be excluded, or I believe you use the term non-certified, or rated as promising model and model plus programs. So can you just kind of give us the quick distinction between these certifications? Because model plus is the best. So how do you get to that? I would say that model plus has the most rigorous evidence for scale. Okay. And so quickly, the non-certified, and we have all of this on our website, there's there's 1,600 programs that we've looked at over time, and 111 have met our standards. So not a lot, but they're the ones that we can hang our hat on saying we are confident in terms of the findings. And in terms of those that don't get certified, it's oftentimes because they don't have enough information in their studies for us to make a decision. So we have certain standards that we're following. And if they don't have that information in their study, for example, a very common one is thinking about attrition. 
And those who don't have complete data, are they different from those systematically different from those who you do have complete data on? But reporting your sample size over time, some basic things that oftentimes studies might miss. And we try to get that information and we can't because for whatever reason. So that would be the non-certified group. The certified group, in a nutshell, the difference between promising model and model plus have shown replication and long-term effects. And the difference between model and model plus is independence. So those who have model plus are those that the program is evaluated by someone who didn't develop the program. But the model model plus designation really means that this program has been replicated and shown effect over time. So we feel that that is the type of science needed to scale an intervention, whether it be at a school level, at a community level, at a state level, et cetera. And there are lots of frameworks that exist, like communities that care, prosper, different models that we actually have on the Blueprints Registry, frameworks to help in scaling of these model, model plus programs. Promising is just that. They show evidence, at least from one study, of a well-done, rigorous study showing impact. They might not show long-term impact or maybe hasn't been replicated. So that's the difference. You just mentioned this. I believe you said it was 1,100 programs that are Blueprint certified. So we have looked at over 3,000 studies. We Um, have looked at 1,600 programs. And of the 1,600, we have 111 currently listed on our website. And it's not to say that all these other programs don't work. It's often we don't have enough information to conclude because there's information missing. Or it could be that the there have been well-done studies on these interventions, but there isn't information to help implement with fidelity in communities. So that would then keep it from the 111 that do meet our standards. One thing that I think is important to note is that Blueprints is not solely a criminal justice type of registry, right? Like there's a wide variety of programs out there. But so out of the 111, how many actually involve criminal justice systems outcomes? Yeah, it depends on how you define criminal justice outcomes. But I can give you an example. So the way the Blueprints registry works, if you go onto our website, let's see, what is it? www.blueprintsprograms.org is our website. And then there's a, a tab called Find Programs. You click on that and you'll see a list of all the promising model and model plus but you might want to search on certain criteria because what you know that list might be daunting. It might, you might not know the name of the program you're looking for. And so you can search on criteria. And one of the criteria you can search on is outcomes. And we have multiple outcomes. That's listed on our website too. I think we have up to, I don't know, 25 outcomes that we're looking at, youth outcomes, behavioral outcomes. If you search on some of the examples you can search on our website, if you search on delinquency or criminal behavior, if you search on sexual violence, victimization. I did a search on those four terms and I came up with 26 listed, 10 model, model plus, and 16 promising. Now, one might say that's not much, but when you think about it, 30 years ago, nothing worked. It was kind of the mantra. And now we have 26 programs for those specific outcomes that show effectiveness, 10 of which show long-term effectiveness that's been replicated. So, you know, important considerations when we think about and we listed earlier reasons why should we adopt evidence-based interventions. We've got 26 now that show us that they're ready for scale and implementation and in terms of being effective for certain target populations. That's actually more than I expected you to say. So I think that's fantastic. And people need to be taking more advantage of this information. Thank you. I agree. 
So if someone is interested in getting their program examined by Blueprints and possibly certified, what kind of process do they take and what should they know before going through the review process? Well, we get questions. What does it take to be certified by Blueprints? And those questions might come from developers, so folks who have developed programs, and they want to get on the list because these lists, this list is used for evidence-based decision-making, such as funding mandates, etc. We might get requests from evaluators or researchers who are independent. They've done this study and they want to see it vetted across the standards that we use. So there's a way you can go on our website which I just gave, let's see, it's www.blueprintsprograms.org. And then there's a tab called nominate a program. And it lists out exactly what you need to do. It lists out what information we're looking for, what our requirements are, and how long the process takes. We also have an email address that's open to the public on our website. You can ask questions also. Anyway, that's what I would do to go about to nominate a program. It usually takes about six months for us to put it in the queue and get back to you. And we will give a very rigorous response if it meets our standards or not. And if it doesn't, we talk about the limitations. And then we also invite the opportunity for, we might ask additional questions. So for those who are willing to conduct additional analyses, or we've even had folks share their data sets with us and we can run them, but we're transparent in everything that we do. We share everything with those who ask questions of us or those that nominate a program for Blueprints Review. I highly encourage folks if you're working on a study and it's got a control group that involves youth, please do send us your studies. Um, we might have picked it up ourselves through our literature researches, and we have massive efforts around how to find these studies. Mm-hmm. But we absolutely encourage solicitations from researchers and developers who want to submit their program for Blueprints Review. Okay, so you mentioned this earlier, so great foreshadowing there. So there is another organization that reviews and certifies programs, Crime Solutions. And so I want to ask maybe why maybe someone should like to have Blueprints review their program, maybe then Cram Solutions. Well, I would say do both personally, but and I would encourage folks to look at both. Depends on your question. There's some overlap between the two registries and there are some differences. I'll do my best to talk about the differences. I know Blueprints more than I know Crime Solutions, but I'm obviously quite familiar with Crime Solutions. So crime solutions, their focus is crime. Their focus is not prevention. Their focus is not youth. So, But some of the programs they have within the registry absolutely involve youth and prevention, as long as it's got an outcome related to crime. They also have interventions for adults, adult offenders. They also, instead of just looking at programs, which is what we focus on, and by programs, I mean thinking about that theoretical mechanism for how those activities come together. They look at more practices, so they look at meta-analysis, and they're looking for general strategies. So you'll find different information on crime solutions. The other thing that could happen, which is a challenge of some of these federal clearinghouses that focus on one domain, is you might have a program like, for example, the Good Behavior Game is kind of a... I'm not trying to promote any individual intervention, but that's a program that's shown to reduce delinquency and improve academic achievement. Well, since Crime Solutions doesn't focus on academic achievement, I don't know if they mention that outcome versus Blueprints is comprehensive in terms of thinking about all the domains around prevention. So the key takeaway here, though, is... One, I'm not saying what one is better than the other. I'm saying it's important to consider evidence and there are many resources out there. And if a listener 
goes to Blueprints or goes to Crime Solutions and has questions trying to find a certain program or study that they're interested in, we have an email address. You can go to our website. It gives you our email address and you can ask us those kinds of questions. Why does Crime Solutions say this? Blueprints say that? Or where could I find this at Blueprints? Is it on Crime Solutions? Those types of questions we're available to answer because what's most important is we want folks to be considering evidence when they're implementing interventions in different community settings. All right. So for the last 10 minutes or so, we want to dive into a paper that you sent us that recently you, along with some of your colleagues, you conducted this analysis on racial and ethnic representation in preventive intervention research. So really getting into that aspect of who is involved in the study. And so based on studies in the Blueprints for Healthy Youth Development Registry, your team conducted a descriptive analysis on the prevalence of culturally tailored intervention and reporting of sample characteristics among 885 programs with evaluations published between 2010 and 2021. So can you provide us, I know I just kind of introduced it, really pulled a lot from your abstract there. So thank you for doing the legwork. Can you give us the background of the study and what the motivation for it was? Absolutely. So I want everyone listening to go back to where you were in October of 2020. So the think about all the protests happening in the community. Think about COVID just, you know, and, and all that we didn't know around COVID. And I had folks come to me asking me, what is Blueprints as a leader in the field going to do? How are we going to react to these challenges? How are we going to guide the field? And at the time, I had some ideas, but I didn't have a good answer. And I kept getting on top of that several questions about you know what, this intervention has been on the Blueprints Registry for a long time, but it's not quite fitting in with the population that I'm working with. And I'm not clear, can I change it? Can I adapt it? How should I do that? What is your advice? So it was a combination of those, of getting the question posed to me in October of 2020 with questions from the community about cultural adaptations and how to make these interventions relevant across diverse communities that I thought, you know what, I'm going to put on my researcher lens or my researcher hat, and I want to understand the situation before I give guidance. I also want to read and see what other folks, there are people much more knowledgeable about this topic than me. I wanted to know what community members were saying, what the community voice was. I wanted to know people who have expertise in thinking about racial equity and social determinants of health. That's not my areas of expertise. So we then decided we are sitting, my colleagues and I, on a just a wonderful resource of lots of information. It's a goldmine of information. So we decided to do a systematic review. And starting with, before we can really answer questions about how evidence can reduce disparities or how blueprints can support thinking about issues around racial inequities and disparities in our communities, we need to understand for whom these interventions have been tested on, for whom they've been developed for, and how representative are the samples are across diverse populations. So we spent two years reviewing our data and reading the literature. And that's what produced this paper, this academic paper, which is the first of three papers that we're working on. And this one is really focused on how representative are the samples 
of evidence-based preventive interventions, which has implications for generalizability. The second paper that we're now starting relates to more impact. And when we think about impact, what subgroups might these interventions be effective for? And the third, I'm not going to get into due to lack of time, and we haven't started it yet. We have a newsletter coming out on Monday that will detail this paper and provide an open access source if folks are interested in reading it. So perhaps listeners jump on the Blueprints website, go to our newsletter link, and look for the newsletter that's going out on September 18th, 2023. If you want more information on the study, it's also listed on a resources page that we have, a publications page on our website. And we'll link it on our website too. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now we want to dive into your results. And can you tell us what you found with things like, you know, the prevalence of culturally tailored programs reporting, sample characteristics? What did you find? So first, we should perhaps define what we mean by culturally tailored programs. So when we think about culturally tailored programs, we think about cultural relevance. And within different cultures, there are different traditions and different um, customs for how information gets relayed and disseminated. Also different customs for how, for example, you parent differs across different cultures. So by culturally tailored, we mean interventions that were designed with a specific target population in mind. And then really studying the culture around that target population and developing your logic model, your theory of change around the needs of that specific culture when it comes to reducing risk factors and promoting protective factors. So that's what we mean by culturally tailored. And across the, Jennifer, forget the exact number, 850 studies we looked at, across 85 studies, we found that 2% were culturally tailored for African-American and 4% for Hispanic or Latino. We then broke it down by rural versus urban. And I think we found like 1% developed for urban communities. We looked at it by socioeconomic disadvantage and thinking about programs that might support families that live in economically deprived communities and thinking about tailoring strategies for those types of target populations. I can't remember the, are you look, do you have the percentage in front of you? You're, you're nodding your head. It was low. The point is, yeah, it's low. There aren't very many culturally tailored programs. And why that's important to understand is what that means is when we think about the 111 programs on their blueprints registry, they might not work for certain populations depending on the unique needs of those populations. That's why that intervention specificity is so important. Or, and or, they might require some specific tailoring or adaptations to be more relevant to the target population you're working with. And that takes takes expertise, that takes guidance, because you cannot assume that a program tested with one population is going to work for another. And so when we think about the lack of culturally tailored programs, we think about the importance then of cultural adaptation and making sure that we have strategies or guidance around that. And then knowing at what point have you changed the program so much to meet that target population that it's an entirely new program. And so there's, you know, that kind of the thinking that goes into the discussion of this paper. Yeah, I was shocked, but also simultaneously not shocked at how low the prevalence actually was. In terms of um, samples, so the other piece that Jen mentioned that we looked at was looking at who are the folks 
represented in these samples. And what we did, I should back up a little, is we looked at the medical research field and we looked at, you know, we saw evidence showing clinical trials, for example, for different medical treatments and how underrepresented certain populations are, particularly populations that come from communities of color, are in these clinical trials of medical interventions. So we wanted to see what that looked like in the prevention intervention or prevention science world. And what we found across these 885 studies in 11 years is the majority, which is good news, higher than the medical field, 77% of the studies we looked at actually reported information on the racial characteristics of their sample. We followed census codes, so we separated race from ethnicity, and across the 885 program, 64% of studies reported ethnicity. So the good news is it's more than half. The bad news is it's not 100%. Now, I should be clear, across these 885 programs, 111 met our standards. So we weren't thinking about, did they meet our evidence base or not? We were just looking collectively across studies that have been conducted in the prevention science field across 11 years time. That's kind of the the first that we're able to find that represents social sciences and evidence-based preventive interventions in terms of how representative our samples are of different populations based on race and ethnicity. And then I think the second part of that question to jump ahead is for those that reported race, how represented within the racial categories. So we're thinking about how these interventions might translate to different populations or how you might adapt them. So of the 77% that reported race, just over a third of the participants, so 35% of the enrollees were white, 28% were Black or African-American, and 31% did the classic other category where they were combining across multiple racial categories or mixing race and ethnicity into one category. And then of the 64% of studies that reported ethnicity, less than one third, so 32% of enrollees were Hispanic or Latino. So then you then map that to the demographics of the United States and thinking through when we think about effective strategies for supporting healthy youth development and knowing we can't translate across populations, assuming what works for one population will work for another. This representation piece is really important. And another piece we talk about in the paper is another level of complexity to think about heterogeneity within a racial group as well. And that's where these culturally tailored programs can be really useful and impactful. Okay. So given what we've just talked about, that very few of those studies were actually um, tailored to ethno-racial minorities and What are the implications of your study for future research as well as policy and practice? Well, going back to what I do now as a researcher, I make sure when I'm thinking about collecting demographic data, being very comprehensive in the categories that I'm collecting information on and looking to the literature about how do you think about gender versus gender identity versus sexual orientation. Those are all different constructs. Thinking about even though race is a social construct, what's the best way to represent it and how I'm collecting the data? And in thinking about... Let me jump in real quick. I have worked on a project with Pam in the beginning, and (laughs) that is very, very true. You definitely (laughs) do that. And it's a good thing. Yes. Thank you, Jen. And then also thinking about when we talk about for whom this intervention works, it's pushing the question beyond working and adding the piece 
for whom and in what settings. And making sure that those samples that you're looking at, that you're explicit about who that intervention has been tested on. So at Blueprints, I talked about one of our standards is intervention specificity. That's super important for us to understand the target population and the sample. If they're not collecting that information, we're going to ask for it in order to be on our registry. Because we have to be explicit about who these interventions work for or have been tested on. But as a field, collectively, it's really important that we think about for whom these interventions have been tested on and then think about the strategies out there. And there is a, we didn't even get into the dearth of information beyond for populations, Black, African-American, Hispanic, or Latino. There's, I mean, we live in a very diverse society and there are many populations that we have little to no evidence on. So the piece around cultural adaptation is super, super, super important. We need more information about that. We also need more information and more studies and more investment in designing interventions that work for certain populations that are culturally tailored based on theory, based on what we know in the literature. So there's we've come a very long way in 30 years in terms of understanding what works. We still have work to do. Marching orders. You're giving everyone marching orders. <laughs> And we welcome your input. We're in this newsletter we're sending out. We're talking about Blueprint's role in terms of promoting racial equity. We don't conduct the studies. We don't design the interventions, but we are a platform that disseminates information. And we want to hear from folks. What do you see in terms of what information is important to disseminate on these interventions? And how can we represent you know, populations that are supported versus those that aren't? And how do we support populations that we need more science on or more support for? So we welcome people's input. And that's part of this newsletter, asking folks to email us with their ideas, with their studies, with their perspective. All right. Well, I think that's a great way to end and say thank you so much for coming on the podcast, fam. It's been a pleasure to have you on and nice to catch up with you as well. Where can people find you? So we've talked about Blueprints. We'll find the Blueprints email that you were talking about and post that as well. But if people want to reach out to you specifically, how would they go about doing that? Glad you asked. So we have a presence on social media. So LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Do I call it X now? I <laughs> keep up. Also, we have a quarterly newsletter. We, you can sign up from our website. Like I mentioned, we have this online platform, www.blueprints.org. Within our registry, we have an email address open to the public. So you can answer or ask any questions. If you have a question specific to me, you can put that in your email and it'll be sent to me. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. My pleasure. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.